Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number seven, Until We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Um, before we begin, uh, just a couple quick announcements. We've got uh, our fall uh, regional moot season is winding down now. We have uh, this coming weekend in just a couple days, I will be going to Denver, Colorado for uh, Mountain Moot, our second annual Mountain Moot, which has been... Um, which has been great fun. So, um, so that's uh, that's that that's going to be happening right away this weekend. Though it's not too late to join us remotely. Um, you might even be able to join us in person. I'm not 100 percent sure about that. <laughs> but if you're in Denver, give it a shot. I probably won't turn you away. Um, and as, as I say, you can still join us remotely. All of our moots, of course, are fully hybrid moots. And a month from now. Uh, on the 2nd of December, we will have our first ever Bayou Moot. Uh, we're going to be um, down in New Orleans, uh, down in New Orleans uh, for our first ever Bayou Moot. Um, so that's going to be great. Um, uh, anyway, so that is, um, uh, those are the uh, events immediately upcoming. Then, of course, we're going to have... Um, uh, we're going to have Ozmoot down in Australia in January, and that will be our transition into our spring moot season, um, which is just starting to heat up. We've just confirmed SoCal moot. Tex moot is, uh, uh, is firming up soon. We've got a good lead on UK moot going back to Europe. So uh, lots of things that are, um, that are coming up. We're, we're talking about going to D.C. We're talking about going to Canada. We're talking about... Um, all kinds of things in the spring. So, sunshine mood, of course, Scott. That one is already uh, that one's already up uh, in uh, in February. So, um, really, really, uh, uh, really fun stuff uh, that is that is happening there. All right, um, let us let us get back to the text. Um, every single week, I have even more slides that I'm trying to get through. <laughs> so pretty soon I'm just going to have the book open uh, and do a, and it'll just be a kind of uh, running commentary on the text or something. But, um, uh, but we've been getting through double digits of slides now for several uh, sessions in a row. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling confident. Um, all right. Okay. Um, let us, um, let us let us get back into things. So we were near the end of Orwell's meeting with Psyche up on the mountain. Very very painful meeting with Psyche up on the mountain. Um, and I want to. We this is the slide that we ended with. I want to reread it um, just to make sure because we're this is something we need to kind of hold uh, in our heads as we get into the stuff that we're going to be looking at today. Today we're so this is chapter eleven. Uh, we're finishing up here from last time. Um, my goal is to do chapters 12 and 13. I said last time, read through 14, because maybe we'd get that far. Um, I can now officially say that there's... Uh, I can officially change that the little hope of getting to chapter 14 to no hope. Um, definitely plenty to do in uh, chapters 12 and 13. Um, okay. Off we go. Psyche says, If it's all my fancy, how do you think I have lived these many days? Do I look as if I'd fed on berries and slept under the sky? Are my arms wasted? Or my cheeks fallen in? 
I would, I believe, have lied to her myself and said they were, but it was impossible. From the top of her head to her naked feet, she was bathed in life and beauty and well-being. It was as if they flowed over her and from or from her. It was no wonder Bardia had worshipped her as a goddess. The very rags served only to show more of her beauty. All the honey sweetness, all the rose red and ivory, the warm breathing perfection of her. She even seemed, but that's impossible, I thought, taller than before. And as my lie died unspoken, she looked at me with something like mockery in her face. Her mocking looks had always been some of her loveliest. You see, she said, it's all true. And that, no, listen, Maya, that's why all will come right. We'll make, he will make you able to see, and then... I don't want it, I cried, putting my face close to hers, threatening her almost, till she drew back before my fierceness. I don't want it. I hate it. Hate it, hate it, hate it. Don't you understand? Okay. Yeah, we talked about the mocking looks a little bit last time. Um, and we were, and I was reminding uh, people of the earlier passages about her imitating people. Um, I th think I get the mocking looks line, what, why it is that she might look loveliest when she is mocking. Um, you look at the sort of the tone of her mockery, the way in which her, um, her mockery, like her imitations of the fox, for instance, are based on both her understanding of the fox and her love of the fox. She has genuine affection for him and genuinely knows him very well. And those two things enable her to imitate him effectively. Uh, as Orwell says, you know, she, she does that very well. Um, and both of those two things, both, uh, and those, I think, are two of the things that are in play here um, when, there, with, when there's something like mockery in her face as she's talking to Orwell here. She's teased, she's, almost inclined to tease Orwell here because she both knows Orwell very well and loves her very much, right? And those two things combined. Remember, what just happened was totally nonverbal, right? Orwell looks at her and is tempted to lie to her and say, oh, no, actually, yes, you look horrible. Your arms are wasted. Yeah, you, yeah. You look horrible. She's, she's tempted to try to tell that lie in order to convince Psyche to come away with her or to convince Psyche to doubt herself, right? But as she's about to tell that lie, she can't tell that lie. And the, so the point about the mockery is that Psyche can see that whole transaction happening in Orwell's head. She knows her well enough to know what she was about to do that she's now not going to do it and why she's not going to do it. And she's going to like tease her a little for that. Right. Um, out of her love and affection for her. Um, but um, yeah, anyway, so again, the two things that I would emphasize about how her description of Psyche here. And again, I know we covered this before, but I, I wanted to go over it so that we, we have it fresh in our heads as we move forward. Not only the fact that Psyche looks like a goddess. Psyche has looked like a goddess since she was in her cradle, 
right? That was the, the first thing the fox said when he saw her. And she looks like, um, you know, Helen New Hatched uh, is what she looked like uh, in her cradle. Um, so she's always sort of looked like a goddess, right? But what Orowal is particularly noticing is it's not only that she is not wasted and her cheeks are not fallen in. It's not just that she doesn't look bad or starveling, uh, to use her word. It is that, oh no, sorry, that's the fox's word, chapter 13. But she, um, she looks better. Her beauty has grown. That line even about, she even looks taller than before. What Orowal has to admit when she looks at her, why she cannot, physically cannot lie to her and tell her and try to maintain that she looks bad, like she, that she looks like she's suffering, is that she looks better, significantly better. Um, it is like life and beauty and well-being flowed over her or from her. Over her, like life and beauty and well-being from the gods have flowed over her and transformed her, or that they even flow from her. That meeting her now really is on one level, like Orwell meeting a goddess. Orwell never felt that way about Psyche. As much as she loved her, as much as she admired her, as much as taken as she's always been with her beauty, Orwell never thought of Psyche as a goddess. She was always her daughter. In this moment, this is the first moment where Orwell looks at Psyche and thinks to herself, it is no wonder Bardia had worshipped her as a goddess. Um, she has changed. She has changed. Um, and the change is in absolutely the opposite direction that Orowal would expect if Psyche had, in fact, just been living wild on the hillside for these weeks. Um, so, again, in response, Psyche's teasing her. Um, notice Psyche says... You see, it's all true. She knows what, she can tell what Orwell is noticing. You can see the evidence in looking at me that the story that I am telling you about being taken into the house of the God, about being made mistress of the house of the God, um, being joined to the God in marriage, you can see that it's true. You can see the truth of it in me. You can't see the house yet, but you can see me. And you can see that that's true. And that's why all will come right, she says. Um, he will make you able to see, able to see the house as well as Psyche. Remember, he's the one who gave permission for Psyche to see Orwell, right? for Orwell to see Psyche, right? Um, she didn't realize Orwell wasn't going to be able to see the house. But she is, or Psyche is confident that eventually... Orwell will be able to see it. And notice that, um, notice the shift from we'll make to he will make, right? She begins by thinking the ability to make Orwell see the palace might be in her own gift. Um, but she herself, Psyche herself, is still feeling her way into this godly domain, this divine domain that she's now living in, right? Um, 
And then she screams, I don't want it. I hate it. And Curious Chance, what a wonderful question. What is the it? What is the antecedent of it? I don't want it. The immediate antecedent would seem to be the ability to see. I don't want, you know, he will, he will give you this. I will cover, he will make you able to see. I don't want it. I don't want the ability to see. But, but clearly there's more than that, right? Sphinx, I agree. It's the whole thing. Everything about this. I don't want it. I hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. Do you understand? All of this God stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, Ambrosius, I agree with you that she, um, she doesn't want a life in which you don't need me. Like, that's, like, I don't want a life in which you don't need me would be a thing that is in her mind, in part. Yes, totally, that's certainly true. And Emily, I agree with you also that she hates anything that Psyche prefers to her. Yes, definitely. She feels in competition with the god, with this husband, right, who now has the loyalty and, uh, and um, love of Psyche, um, despite the fact that Psyche keeps assuring her that she still loves her, too. Um, I think Emily and Ambrosius, I think both of those things are true. However, I don't think that that's what she's referring to here. Um, those, are, those are elements, but those are... And all of these things kind of come together. All these things, they're not... I'm not trying to disconnect them entirely at all, but I don't think it's what she's referring to here. What I think she's referring to, remember what she, what she had just now, like when looking at Psyche, she had a true glimpse, a true understanding of a glimpse of divine things. She realizes in looking at Psyche, she is looking at something divine that Psyche is becoming a goddess. And she is seeing that change coming over Psyche. She hates change, especially in Psyche. That's another thread as well. But again, I think it's the divine stuff. It's the ability. She hates seeing divine. She hates coming in contact with divine. She wants nothing to do with the gods, even when what the gods are showing is beautiful. If you remember, there's a parallel here. And the parallel is, why should my heart not dance? When she was, the gods were showing her beauty before. When she was riding up the mountain and seeing this new landscape for the first time and finding it beautiful and feeling her heart desire to dance in response. She was being given comfort for her grief. Um, she was being shown delight and pleasure that she had never under, never had and didn't understand. And she rejected it. She chose to reject it. And that, I think, is parallel. I'm not saying it's the same exact thing, but it's parallel, and I think pretty closely parallel, to what she's rejecting here. Um, and yes, Maureen, I think that that's a very important point. Um, the hate it, hate it, hate it, is like a tantrum. Yes. Yes. She hates that this is happening. She hates that this stuff is coming between her and Psyche. Um, she doesn't want anything to do 
with any of this. But yes, remember she thinks of Psyche as the child and her as the parent, and the fact that that dynamic has been changing is a thing we've been seeing has been an issue for her since before Psyche was sacrificed, right? Um, so yes, the sort of childishness of that, the, 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 the childish temper of that, I think that's an important perception. Um, a childish tantrum in the person who is, um, you know, protesting, who is grudging um, a child growing up <clears throat> and not acting like a child towards them anymore. is It's pretty conspicuous, right? All right. With this now, let's keep going. But Orwell, why? What do you hate? So Psyche asks the question explicitly, right? Oh, the whole... So I get, now, keep in mind, I'm really glad that we answered this question before we got to this slide, because what we're getting here is not the true answer. What we're getting here is Orwell's answer, right? Not necessarily the same thing. Okay. Oh, the whole... What can I call it? You know very well. Or you used to. This... This... And then something she had said about him, hardly noticed till now, began to work horribly in my mind. This thing that comes to you in the darkness, and you're forbidden to see it. Holy darkness, you call it. What sort of thing? Fah! It's like living in the house of Ungit. Everything's dark about the gods. I think I can smell the very... The steadiness of her gaze, the beauty of her, so full of pity, yet in a way so pitiless, made me dumb for a moment. Then my tears broke out again. Oh, Psyche, I sobbed. You're so far away. Do you even hear me? I can't reach you. Oh, Psyche, Psyche, you loved me once. Come back. What have we to do with gods and wonders and all these cruel, dark things? We're women, aren't we? Mortals. Oh, come back to the real world. Leave all that alone. Come back where we were happy. Yeah. Um, yes, Sarah, and Orwell's answer as she remembers it at this at the later time. Yeah, very true. Okay. Um, she tries to explain what she hates, and she totally fails at first. The whole, what can I call it, you know very well, or you used to, this, this. And then she changes tack. This thing that comes to you in the darkness. Right? She takes the god Psyche's husband as like the embodiment, right? The sort of crystallization of this thing that she can't articulate that she hates and rejects, right? Um, holy darkness, you call it. We were noting that phrase uh, when Psyche used it before, such an interesting and conspicuous phrase in the context of holiness in the dark house of Ungit that we've heard about before, right? And Orwell kind of pounces on that. Holy darkness, you call it. Fuck, it's like living in the house of Ungit. Which means, note, she is implicitly comparing Psyche to one of the temple prostitutes in the house of Ungit, right? You are a you are, one, you are like one of Ungit's girls, living in the darkness in the house of Ungit, with a strange man coming to you and having sex with you in the darkness. That's just what happens at the house of Ungit, right? And remember, she was painted and masked like one of... Uh, painted, masked, and her breasts gilded like one of um, Ungit's girls. 
at the time of her sacrifice as well. And yes, Mighty Felix, she will ex- do this explicitly soon, right? Um, make that accusation. She's co- sort of working up to it. But you can see this. So everything's dark about the gods. I think I can smell the very... I'm not sure what she's breaks off there. Um, but I I think it's going to be unpleasant. Um, and no, Arthur, I'm relatively confident it is not elves that she is smelling. But in any case, um, notice the way in which... Notice the kind of defense mechanism that Orwal has um, kicked in here. And I say defense mechanism... It really sounds like a defense mechanism to me, right? What she was perceiving, the thing she was rejecting, was not dark and horrible and ugly. It was beautiful. It was the beauty of Psyche herself, right? Just as she rejected the beauty and delight of the landscape, of the mountain itself, before, right? And she's now rejecting the beauty that has been given to Psyche, not her native beauty, this additional glory. Um, How bright-faced she was, remember, like Aphrodite when Anchises woke up. Um, and it's so it's it's not the horrible things about the gods it's the beauty it's, but it's the otherness of the gods right yes it's beautiful yes it's attractive but it's scary it's freaky it's unsettling it's different it is other it is not normal it is not human right and Orwell's taking that and connecting that back around to the House of Ungit, right? She already has this association between holiness and darkness, and she uses that as a kind of lever, right? As a kind of rationalization to associate, right? First, she kind of turns it around, right? And associates the god and the divine, not with beauty, not with life. Remember, what was it uh, that she was? It was uh, a life, beauty, and well-being that was flowing over and from Psyche, right? Associating this divine stuff not with life, beauty, and well-being, but with darkness and horror and stink, right? Um, That makes it easier to reject, right? But notice, in the very midst of it, she's stricken dumb by Psyche's beauty again. It's like the disjunction... She can't keep that up, really. She can't keep up the idea while face-to-face with Psyche that um, all of this, the stuff that she is associating with the god, that Psyche is associating with the god, um, all of these divine things, which Orwell seems herself to now a couple times have gotten a glimpse of. Um, first in the landscape, then in Psyche herself. Um... She's, she wants to reject it. She hates it, right? And she's trying to convince herself that it's just horrible, that, it's ba- that it is to be rejected. It's easily rejectable because it's bad, because it's horrible. Um, and, um, yeah. Sphinx, you're probably right. Sphinx says, I think it has to be blood that was going to finish the broken sentence. I think I can smell the very blood, like the very blood of the sacrifices. Possibly possibly. 
Um, yeah, Sphinx, that makes sense, right? Because, of course, blood of the sacrifice would make her think of Psyche, who was sacrificed, whose blood was offered up uh, for the people, was offered up to Ungit for the people, right? Psyche was the blood sacrifice. And the steadiness of Psyche's gaze and her beauty staring her back in the face. She can't even form it, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I agree with you, Sphinx. Um, the third movement here in this... So the first was just her stumbling around, attempting vainly to articulate it. Then she seizes upon this sort of reversal, right? The reversal to, 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 to characterize the divine thing as a thing of ugliness rather than a thing of beauty. Um, and thus rejected. And then in the third movement is simply the emotional appeal. You're so far away. And this, I think, so we're coming back to, uh, you know, Emily, this is like what you were saying before. And I, I said, I totally agree that that's involved. I still don't think that's what she was saying. I still don't think that's the answer to the question. What do you hate? What she comes around to is not articulating what she hates, but crying out and explaining why she hates it. You're so far away. I can't reach you. Come back. Come back to the real world. Leave all that alone. Come back where we were happy. That this thing that she hates, that this divine stuff, that the bit of divinity, the bit of you know, this beauty of the gods that has been revealed to her, again, first in the landscape, second in Psyche, um, that it, you know, that she rejects it is clear, but, but again, but this is why. She can feel all of that stuff separating her from Psyche, like the stream. Right. Um, yes, Yarrow, I think that's very important. Where we were happy, she was happy. But was Psyche happy? Now, Psyche would say, yes, she was happy. Is she not happy now? Right? That's, of course, the problem. Um, Orwell's not totally wrong. She and Psyche were happy together before. The happiness that Orwell, sorry, that Psyche has now found is a different kind. And there's a very simple model for that. Right? I, I, if a girl is happy in her childhood with her mother and then grows up and gets married and is happy with her husband, happy in a new and different way as an adult on her own in her marriage, in this new relationship, different in so many ways from her relationship with her mother, right? Does that mean she hadn't been happy before? No, of course she's happy before as well, right? But she has moved on from that happiness to a different kind of happiness, right? Um, in some ways, a happiness, uh, you know, it, it, anyway, it's, it's different, right? Um, now, again, what's happening with Psyche is, is more than that, but that's one of the models that we get in. And of course, on, a, on one level, that is exactly part of the problem with Orwell, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, 
but yes, we see Orwell clinging to the one happiness because she's not apart. She's separated from Psyche um, uh, by this. Um, yes, and I, I agree, Sphinx. Orwell. So on the one hand, Orwell could never totally share Psyche's happiness. I mean, like, she's not going to be part of the marriage, right? But she could... Psyche believes that Orwell could be made to see the house in time and perhaps even to stay there, right? That she could enter into the life of happiness and joy. Indeed, that was the very invitation that was given to her in the same language. Why should our hearts not dance? Right? Both times. Both times she was given a glimpse of this divine beauty, she was given that invitation to join in it and to let her heart dance. That was Psyche, you know, remember she was like, we must think what to do. And Psyche's like, what is there to do but be merry? Right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, JJ, you're absolutely right that Orwell has a, uh, a sense of the finitude of love, right? Um, that now that Psyche's love has been drawn away from her and to this new husband and this, these new things, she won't have love left for her anymore. That does seem to be more or less the way that she thinks. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Leave all that alone. Come back to the real world. On one level, it's like she's saying, your world is delusional, my world is actual. Come to the actual world away from the delusional world. But there's another level on which she is well aware of the fact. She couldn't deny the reality. that you know the, She could not completely deny the reality of Psyche's life, as Psyche was just challenging her to do. Right? Um, and as someone, Eric, I think, was suggesting before even saying, I hate it, shows an acknowledgement of its reality. She didn't just deny it. She hated it. And even here in this speech, come back implies that she is, in fact, somewhere else. Right. Um, leave all that alone is not the same thing as saying none of that really exists, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So again, on the one level, come back to the real world sounds like leave delusion behind and come back to reality. But it also seems to me to mean leave the divine world, the world of the gods, and come back to the mortal world. She's crossed the boundary. Orwell has to get here, remember. Leave the gods' world and come back to the mortal world. Because that's the world that I... That's my world. That's the world that I refuse to leave. Because I have now twice rejected the invitation of the gods. Um, okay. You like it! Oh, Psyche! She would not answer me. Her face flushed. Her face and her whole body were the answer. Oh, you ought to have been one of Ungit's girls. 
said I savagely. Here you go, Devorah. You ought to have lived in there, in the dark, all blood and incense and muttering and the reek of burnt fat, to like it, living among things you can't see, dark and holy and horrible. Is it nothing to you at all that you are leaving me, going into all that, turning your back on all our love? No, no, Maya, I can't go back to you. How could I? But you must come to me. Oh, it's madness, said I. Was it madness or not? Which was true? Which would be worse? I was at that very moment when, if they meant us well, the gods would speak. Mark what they did instead. It began to rain. It was only a light rain, but it changed everything for me. Okay. Um, we see, once again, she's taking refuge. Once more again, turning the beauty into ugliness, right? Um, on the one hand, the comparison, the, the parallel between Psyche with her husband, her divine husband coming to her in the darkness um, at night, and Ungut's girls with men coming and having ritual sex with them in the darkness at the house, in the house of Ungut. Um, on the one hand, there's a, there are very striking parallels between those two things, right? Very striking, very clear, and very deliberate parallels. Um, the, um, but at the same time, there's a, such an enormous gap. The gap between them is so wide that for Orwell to make this connection like this and fling that in Psyche's face um, sounds cruel and almost unhinged. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Eric, that's really good. Um, again, here Orwell shows the distinction between what's true and what she wants, which was true, which would be worse. Yes, very different, very different questions. Um, yes. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Ambrosius, you're absolutely right, and this is something that we're going to see many times. Ambrosius says, I was shocked by how vicious Orwell became to Psyche, seemingly suddenly, um, but it makes sense because many types of love can uh, turn to such cruelty. Yes, absolutely. The very passion and intensity of her love makes it prone um, to sort of turn. Um, that passion will have a vent one way or another. Um, I don't know. I mean, haven't most of us, at one point or another in our lives, seen that? Passionate love turned to passionate hatred very quickly? That's a, that's a known phenomenon, right? That's a known phenomenon. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the rain. Um, let me come back to the rain for a second, because, uh, Sarah, I loved your comment on that. Um, more about that. Um, the moment, the turning point that Orwell points to, 
Was it madness or not? Which was true? Which would be worse? I was at that very moment when, if they meant us well, the gods would speak. So, this claim of Orwell's is an important one, right? This is not the last time in this sequence when Orwell is going to make such a prescription for the action of the gods, right? Um, if the gods meant us well, this is what they would do. I think we can see some... Uh, I think we have strong reason to suspect, uh, to, to look askance at this statement by Orwell. On the one hand, um, why? Why would the gods the gods speak to her now if they meant us well. Why? She's claiming that since they didn't speak, they have chosen not to make it clear which was true, madness or not. Right? They have the opportunity. They had the opportunity. They had the opportunity to provide evidence Right to speak clearly and tell her which was true. They had the opportunity. They didn't take it. That proves that they don't mean us well. Really? Um, there's so many interesting points about this. Um, are you sure that is what meaning you well would look like? Speaking? And taking the choice, that is the choice of how you're going to respond, how you're going to interpret it. Orwell spends so much time emphasizing her dilemma, how she's being pulled in multiple ways. That's what all of chapters 12 and 13 are going to be about, right? Um, the different ways in which Orwell is being pulled, the different options for how to interpret facts and how to draw conclusions. Um, is short-circuiting that choice, that moment of interpretation? Um, is that really what the gods would do? Is that really what meaning them well would look like? I I'm not confident that that's the case. Another really important question, just as Corey Schwab was saying, what would it look like for the gods to speak? And I would suggest a, a, a following, um, a follow-up question to that would be, didn't they? Did they not? Because I question another thing. I was at that very moment when the gods would speak. Orwell, no, you weren't. You'd already passed it. She's talking like this is the turning point, Right? This isn't the turning point. You already made your choice. The gods did speak to you through Psyche's beauty. That was what was happening in that first slide we were reviewing at the beginning of the session, right? She heard loud and clear what the gods were saying then. 
If only you would give me some evidence based upon which I could understand what, how to believe. Well, she had it. She had it. Yeah, Ambrosius, what more persuasive emissary could the god of the mountain send than Psyche herself? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yes, the gods did speak through Psyche, and not just her words, right? She has, in fact, been given the evidence that she needs to draw her conclusion. She has evidence to draw other conclusions, too. It is still in her power to go either way. This agony of choice that she is going on about here and in many other places is not something that the gods seem very interested in removing from her. Far to the contrary, right? And then instead what they did, though, is it begins to rain. Um... Yeah. Oh, very good, JJ. Yeah, JJ's quoting the um, the thing from the... Uh, this is her reaction, the delight that she's getting from the landscape as she's riding up. Um, now flung at me like frolic or insolence, there came as if it were a voice. No words, but if you made it into words, it would be, why should your heart not dance? And JJ says, sounds like there was even something close to speech to prepare her. Yeah, exactly. That... They have been speaking. Um, she almost even perceives it. I'm so glad you quoted that. She almost perceives it. Like it registers as speech to her. And just in case she was thinking, oh, well, that, you know, why should your heart not dance? That's That was just me speaking. That wasn't the God speaking to me. Well, the fact that it's almost the first thing that Psyche says to her in the exact same words suggests that Maybe there's something there, right? When Psyche herself echoes, why should our hearts not dance? Um, that would sound like confirmation that that expression, that, that those words that were forming in her own heart and mind were not just coming from herself. Um, Yarrow, I agree. It, it is like she's looking for reasons to be angry with the gods. Um... And what happens is it begins to rain. Now I wanted to come back, Sarah, to that wonderful observation you made, but I'm scrolling back to find it. Um, you were paralleling the... There it is. Um, the rain, often a sign of life, growth, or rebirth, has the opposite effect on Orwell's actions. Yes. And of course, the rain is, remember, one of the results of the sacrifice, right? The sign of the God's blessing is the rain. Like the gods were withholding the rain and the sacrifice comes... And the rain comes immediately, right? As soon as the, sac the sacrifice is made, um, so it's it's associated explicitly with life, the life-giving blessing of the gods. Um, and yeah, there is a kind of irony that, to Orwal, it becomes a proof that they don't give life, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, What does the rain do? The rain falls on Psyche. She's not aware of it because she's in that, right? It's, it emphasizes the gap between their perceptions. Um, it gives to Orwell what seems to her like objective evidence that Psyche's crazy or whatever, right? Um, it strengthens her resolve to reject this and not to believe Psyche. 
but um but um once again the rain like so many other things that we've seen in this story is ambiguous data that can be taken multiple different ways right um if you already believe one thing it will be confirmation of that thing if you believe a different thing it will be confirmation of that thing like the laying on hands when of the sick people as we talked about before um <clears throat> again it seems as if the gods in fact perhaps because they mean us well do not remove that power not only to choose but to interpret right um all in this sense all data is ambiguous data um anyway um let's keep going ridiculous number of slides okay if that wise Greek who is to read this book doubts that this turned my mind right around, let him ask his mother or wife. The moment I saw her, my child whom I had cared for all her life, sitting there in the rain as if it meant no more to her than it does to cattle, the notion that her palace and her god could be anything but madness was at once unbelievable. All those wilder misgivings, all the fluttering to and fro between two opinions was, for that time, quite over. I saw in a flash that I must choose one opinion or the other. And in the same flash, I knew which I had chosen. Psyche, I said, and my voice had changed. This is sheer raving. You can't stay here. Winter will be on us soon. It'll kill you. I cannot leave my home, Maya. Home? There's no home here. Get up. Here, under my cloak. She shook her head a little wearily. Um, notice... I saw in a flash that I must choose, and in the same flash knew which I had chosen. Right? What happens in the rain is it cements for Orwal the recognition of and confidence in the choice she had already made. It doesn't convince her. It's not like new evidence that changes her mind. It helps her to see by appealing to her care for Psyche, right? Her, her, her affection and desire to protect Psyche. It makes it clear to her which way she had already chosen. Now, we've already seen her. We, we've known which way she chose, right? We've seen it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Leaf of Starlight, yeah, I think we have to be a little bit careful. Um, she It's not quite true that she never has moments, as you say, um, that she never has moments where she's open to something different. Um, she does talk about it a lot. Uh, she talks about the fluttering to and fro between two opinions, right? By her own testimony, she was open to another option. But we saw her reaction against that, even when it was inarticulate and purely emotional, right? It wasn't exactly a choice so much as a, I don't know what, a sort of impulse, right? Um, 
yeah, she gets glimpses and then shuts it down. Lisa Starlet, I agree. But paying attention to um, what what's most interesting is when there are moments when we will see her flutter to and fro, when we will see her entertain other other possibilities, and there are even more times when we will hear her talk about her entertaining other possibilities. Um, yeah, Eric suggests she, she he's not sure he was she was open to the other view, just aware of it. Possibly, possibly. Um, I open would be a strong word, right? I don't think she's ever open to it. I agree, um, but um, perhaps instead of open, Eric, I would say susceptible to it. I think that she is, to some extent and on some level, susceptible to the other viewpoint. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's let's keep going. Get up, girl, I said. Do you hear me? Do as you're told. Psyche, you never disobeyed me before. She looked up, wetter every moment, and said, very tender in voice, but hard as a stone in her determination, Dear Maya, I am a wife now. It is no longer you that I must obey. I learned then how one can hate those one loves. My fingers were round her wrist in an instant, my other hand on her upper arm. We were struggling. You shall come, I panted. We'll force you away, hide you somewhere. Bardia has a wife, I believe. Lock you up, his house, bring you to your senses. It was useless. She was far stronger than I. Of course, I thought. They say mad people have double strength. We left marks on one another's skin. Remember, her strength was something she noticed. The increase of her strength is something she noticed from the very beginning. Long before she suspected her of being mad, right? We can see sort of the retroactive rationalization there. Um, yes, Sarah, exactly. We see the short love, uh, short road between love and hate. Yes, yes. Um, yes. Yeah, JJ, you're right. It is like a reversal of what happens in The Last Battle, which, remember, published the same year as this book. Um, there, the stubborn disbelievers saw a structure where there was none. Here, she doesn't see the structure that exists. Yeah, that is a really fun... Um, comparing and contrasting the dwarfs uh, in the stable in The Last Battle with Orwell, uh, uh it would be would be an interesting... Because they're very similar, but there are really important differences. And I think the, the, um, the sort of irony of that reversal that you're pointing to JJ, I think is, 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 is it's, it's not the only or a coincidental difference between the two of them. Um, <laughs> yeah. Curious chances. Imagine writing both those books in one year. Bonkers. Totally agree. Um, Curious chance. Remember, this is one of the things that I think Tolkien um, uh, kind of hated about Lewis. Um, could you imagine Tolkien doing that? Pumping out both of those two books in a single year? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> anyway, okay. Um, This, uh, I wanted to make sure that we saw this in part um, because we're going to see more of this. That is the question of 
this relationship between love and hate. Um, what we learn about the nature of Orwell's love, right? Um, I don't think... Um, <laughs> right. JJ said, can you imagine Tolkien pumping out both of those books in a single decade? And then Arthur asks, can you imagine George R. R. Martin pumping out both of those books in a single century? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, okay. <laughs> yes, it's wild. Okay. Um, I don't believe that this is what just happened here is Orwell's love turning into hate. Her love doesn't turn into hatred. That's not exactly what's happened. What she says is how one can hate those one loves. Um, she is talking about the redirection of passion. And hate here, I believe, um, you know, it does, she doesn't despise Psyche, right? She doesn't, she doesn't think ill of her. Um, what the expression of the hate that she did, that she is talking about there is the physical violence against her, right? Like she is, she is acting against, she's doing violence to Psyche, which remember when, um, um, remember when Redival hit Psyche? Remember what happened? Like, Orwell almost blacked out, and when she came to, she was astride of Redival, like, pounding her face, right? And the fox had to pull her off to keep her from killing her, right? Um, and now she's the one who is doing violence to Psyche. Violence against someone else as an expression of opposition, like as as like you know that kind of violent contrary action is like the kind of thing that she is talking about about this action of hatred, right? She still loves her, but her love is now leading her to take violent action to do the very thing that she hated herself so much that she like completely you know, went ape on, uh, on, on Redival before. Right. Um, what is the relationship between that hate and that love? That we'll explore more as we see, that's going to be a major theme of, uh, chapter 14. Um, the other thing, and, um, Yes, Eric, I think that's such an important point. She has hatred, not for Psyche, but she vents it against Psyche. Yes, yes. Um, she is still expressing her love in the sense that she is trying to remove Psyche from the bad situation, right? She has now firmly convinced herself that Psyche is in need, that Psyche is being harmed, right? And she is going to remove the one that she loves from that bad situation, that's an act of love, right? Um, if you have to do violence against someone and drag them kicking and screaming away from a situation they want to remain in, that looks like an act of hatred, right? Um, but you're right, Eric. Um, she's hating, hate it, hate it, hate it, 
I think that's where her hatred is still directed, right? Um, yeah. Tomas, exactly. Tomas says, now who decides is it a bad situation she's in? Yes. And the the extremely uh, parental authority, uh, you know, sort of position that she's put herself in, authority that she's invoking, get up, girl, do you hear me? Do as you're told, right? Um, is a, an expression of where she feels where Orwell feels that her authority to decide what is a bad situation, she can't, Psyche obviously can't make up her own mind, right? Can't be trusted to make up her own mind. That's often true of children, right? It's a good thing they have parents. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. At the end, near the end, chapter 11, finally. <laughs> Are you sending me away forever, Psyche? And with nothing? Nothing, Orowal, but a bidding to come again as soon as you can. I'll work for you here. There must be some way. And then, oh Maya, then we shall meet here again with no cloud between us. But now you must go. What could I do but obey her? In body she was stronger than I. Her mind I could not reach. She was already leading me back to the river, back through the desolate valley she called her palace. The valley looked hideous to me now. There was a chill in the air. Sunset flamed up behind the black mass of the saddle. The black mass of the saddle. Notice, again, this transformation of beauty into ugliness. This, this saddle in the mountain there, right? This valley was described in gorgeous terms. It was like a well of life and well-being and beauty before, right? Just like Psyche herself. And now it is a desolate valley. It is a black mass. Um, it is hideous to her now. Um, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Sarah says there's a moot paper in this book about the word child, and who uses this term toward whom. Yeah, that's... Uh, I agree. That would be interesting. Um, the reversal. What could I do but obey her? Um, yes. Yes. Um, notice Psyche's reference to the cloud between them. Um... That, I think, is very important, as we shall very soon see. On the one hand, it's simply a metaphor, right? Like there's a, a cloud of bad feelings, misunderstanding, right? Um, yes. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, you're right, mighty Felix. Orwell was demanding obedience, but was forced to give it instead. Turned out that way, didn't it? Yes. Um, yeah, so remember the cloud between her and Psyche. Um, back to Bardia. Then come with me, lady. I've gathered a few sticks. I followed him, and in that silence, there was nothing now but the chattering of the stream, and it seemed louder than ever. We could hear, long before we came to the horse, the sound of the grass torn up by its teeth. A man and a soldier is a wonderful creature. 
Bardia had chosen a place where the bank was steepest, and two rocks close together made the next best thing to a cave. The sticks were all laid and the fire alight, though still sputtering from the late rain. And he brought out of the saddlebags things better than bread and onions, even a flask of wine. Remember Psyche had said bread and onions with Bardia would be more of a comfort than a feast in her palace, um, in her current frame of mind. I was still a girl, which in many matters is the same thing as a fool, and it seemed to me shameful that in all my sorrow and care I was so eager for the food when it came. I never tasted better. And that meal in the firelight, which had made me all which had made all the rest of the world a mere darkness as soon as it blazed up, seemed to me very sweet and homelike, mortal food and warmth for mortal limbs and bellies, no need for a space to think of gods and riddles and wonders. Um, all right, so we were talking about, last time we were talking a lot about, you know, what, how we were seeing an encounter between the mortal world and the divine world. Um, and the question of, you know, this was a, a major theme of Psyche's own story, um, of her being taken from the, her being brought up from Gloam, uh, chained to the tree, and then taken to the house of the gods. Um, this return across the stream, back to Bardia, away from Psyche, back to Bardia, is emphatically a return to the mortal world. And we get all these reminders of it. And notice all of the comforts, right, from the horse itself, right, the in the darkness, long before they come to the horse, she hears the sound of the grass torn up by his teeth. Right? The sound of the comforting, familiar sound of an animal eating food. Doesn't get more mortal world than that. And indeed, she herself experiences the same animal comfort in eating food when she is hungry. And she feels a fool for that. Right? She, she calls herself a fool. I was still a girl, and which in many matters is the same thing as a fool. Um, and it seemed to me shameful. In all my sorrow and care, I was so eager for the food. What she is declaring foolish, by the way, it sounds to me, is considering it shameful. It's not that she's saying that she was a fool for being comforted in food. I think that as her life has gone on, now that she's an old woman writing this book, she understands more clearly Um Certainly her own experience in the wars later on has taught her to un to appreciate better that in such a moment, um, taking comfort in eating food is nothing to be ashamed of at all, right? Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. That, um, so first you have the return to the mortal, the mortal world and the comfort of mortal things. Human company, warmth, warmth for your body, uh, food to sustain your body. Um, and you have, so you have the active comfort of it. It's very sweet and homelike. Orwell is now returning to the world that she knows, not out of that world that she hates, Whose hatred and that—that's the thing she was rejecting, right? Um, no need for a space to think of gods and riddles and wonders. She can put all of that out of her head. Notice the metaphor of the uh, of the 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 campfire, right? Um, the firelight, which had made all the world a mere darkness as soon as it blazed up. When a comforting fire in dinner is there, right? 
the whole rest of the world disappears. That's the mortal world for you, right? Um, yeah, that's um, that's the mortal world for you. Curious chance, you're you're certainly right that in many mythological contexts, fire belongs to the gods, especially the Greek one. Um, but I don't think fire is ever associated with the gods in this book. Blood, yes. Water, yes. And the rain and the river. Um, peace. Lots of other things. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking of the, like, you know, a, a conception, fertility, right? Um, but not fire. I don't think fire, darkness is the gods, right? And so, once again, if there's holy darkness and presumably dark on the mountain of the god is holy darkness by definition, right? What, there's the, the again the metaphor of the firelight there the metaphor of the campfire it's like Orwal and Bardia sitting around the f- warm fire eating dinner that's like the mortal world itself it's like the whole mortal world and the darkness that you can't see anymore at all once the fire li- is started right outside it that's the holy darkness right it's that other, it's that, that, you know, the, the strangeness. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, this is a side note. We'll come back to this later, but I wanted to note this and I want, there are like five passages I could have pointed to, um, to convey this, but I wanted to make sure it's on your radar screen. Cause it's the kind of thing that I did not pick up at all the first time I was reading this book. So this is one of those things. I'm just going to flag it, and then we're going to move on. Um, He, Bardia, has just suggested that they sleep together back-to-back under both of their cloaks because it's going to be really cold. I said yes to that, and indeed no woman in the world has so little reason as I to be chary in such matters. Yet it surprised me that he should have said it, for I did not yet know that, if you are ugly enough, all men, unless they hate you deeply soon give up thinking you thinking of you as a woman at all. Barty arrested as soldiers do, dead asleep in two breaths, but ready, I have seen him tested since, to be wide awake in one, if need were. I think I never slept at all. First there was the hardness and slope of the ground, and after that the cold. And besides these, fast and whirling thoughts, wakeful as a madman's, about Psyche and my hard riddle, and also of another thing. Yeah, Um, the thing I want to flag and then move on from, um, the other thing, she doesn't mention it here. Even old Orowal, who's writing the book, doesn't come clean about what the other thing is that she's thinking about. Um, I'm going to just suggest... I'm just going to clumsily suggest what Lewis is so skillfully and subtly pointing to here, that the other thing that she's thinking of is the man behind her back. Um, Orwell has a bit of a crush on Bardia, and this is one of the first places that we are um, uh, where she points to that. Um, If you reread chapter 12 and 13, take special note of any time Bardia and his wife are mentioned, and you will see some of the other passages I could have pointed to. 
Um, yes, Vanar, he already has given her the closest thing to a love speech she'll ever have. Not a coincidence and very significant that that speech was from was from Bardia. Yes. Um, okay, so I, I, I totally... In some ways, this is it's like spoilers because this will be revealed later on in the story. But as I say, like all of these, th- these references are very, very subtle, and I didn't pick up on. I was totally like uh, deaf to it, <laughs> at least the first time, possibly the first two times uh, I read the book. So um, uh, anyway, I am. Um, um, I want to. I just. I just want to flag it. Um, we'll come back to this sub because this this is going to become an important subplot later on. Um, it will be an important part of the like um, turning point in Orwell's career, um, but way down the road. So for now, just note that. Okay. At last, the cold grew so bitter that I slipped from under the cloak. Its outer side was wet with dew by now, and began walking to and fro. And now, let that wise Greek whom I look to as my reader and the judge of my cause mark well what followed. It was already twilight, and there was much mist in the valley. The pools of the river as I went down to it to drink, for I was thirsty as well as cold, seemed to be dark holes in the grayness. And I got my drink, ice cold, and I thought it steadied my mind. But would a river flowing in the God's secret valley do that? Or the queen contrary? This is another of the things to be guessed. For when I lifted my head and looked once more into the mist across the water, I saw that which brought my heart into my throat. There stood the palace, gray as all things were gray in that hour and place, but solid and motionless, well, wall within wall, pillar and arch and architrave, acres of it, a labyrinthine beauty. As she had said, it was like no house ever seen in our land or age. Pinnacles and buttresses leaped up. No memories of mine, you would think, could help me to imagine them. Unbelievably tall and slender, pointed and prickly, as if stone were shooting out into branch and flower. No light showed from any window. It was a house asleep, and somewhere within it, asleep also. Someone or something, how holy or horrible or beautiful, or strange, with Psyche in its arms. Okay. Um, All right. She takes a drink from the stream of the gods, the stream which was itself the dividing line between the mortal world and the divine world. The stream that separated her from Psyche like the stream of death separated the dreamer from the pearl in the pearl poem. And she takes a drink of that water and she looks up and for a moment she sees it. She sees the palace that she couldn't see before. It is like the reverse Lethe, uh, Eric. Yeah, yeah. Um, and somewhere within it asleep also someone or something how holy or horrible or beautiful or strange with Psyche in its arms 
her rival, her rival for Psyche's love. And the gamut of things, right? It might be, it's certainly holy. It might be horrible. It might be beautiful. Certainly strange, right? Um, yeah, yeah, Eric, I agree. Hey, Orwell, this is the moment the gods are speaking to you. Here's the third time. There are three moments when it seems the gods have reached out to her. First, in that passage JJ was quoting that I read out earlier, when she's riding up and hears almost as words that form in her heart, why should my heart not dance? The delight and joy that comes into her heart from the mountain as she rides up. Then the meeting with Psyche, and especially that moment that we started with tonight when she sees the beauty and life and well-being flowing over and out of Psyche. And here's the third. The third time she is given a glimpse. Um, Mary, yes, I agree. It is interesting that she switches back to it when referring to the god um, with Psyche in its arms. Um, yes, yes. Um, Psyche certainly always says him, right? Um, uh, we see Orawal, this vision opens her up a little bit to the possibility. Maybe the thing with Psyche in its arms is beautiful. Maybe it's holy and beautiful, not holy and horrible. Um, maybe it's strange. Maybe it's not strange. In the same way that a palace on the mountain is not a strange... It's strange. It's not the same as her child, as Psyche's childhood fantasies. Um, but it's not wholly strange to her either. Because she's had that desire, right? That longing in her heart from her earliest age. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Maureen, you're so right. In the original myth, the sisters are jealous of Psyche. Um, but in Lewis's version, Orwell is jealous of the god. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, it's amazing what Lewis has done with his myth. Um, I have a hard time thinking of anyone who has attempted to do what Lewis is trying to do here in this book, that is taking a traditional myth and retelling it, reinvesting it, I have a hard time thinking of anybody who's done so as, like, more successfully than Lewis has done in this book. Uh, more remarkably. Um, it's pretty amazing. I'm not saying no one else has ever done it well. I'm just saying I, don't, I can't think of anybody who's done it better. Um, but, um, anyway, let's get, I'm not getting sidetracked. We're going to keep moving forward. Uh, more about what is she open to? What is her response to the glimpse? Keep going. And I, what had I done and said? What would it do to me for my blasphemies and unbelievings? I never doubted that I must now cross the river or try to cross it, even if it should drown me. I must lie on the steps of the great gate of that house and make my petition. I must ask forgiveness of Psyche as well as of the god. I had dared to scold her, dared what was worse, to try to comfort her as a child. But all the time she was far above me, herself now hardly mortal, if what I saw was real, 
I was in great fear. Perhaps it was not real. I looked and looked to see if it would not fade or change. Then as I rose, for all this time I was still kneeling where I had drunk, almost before I stood on my feet, the whole thing was vanished. There was a tiny space of time in which I thought I could see how some swirlings of the mist had looked for the moment, like towers and walls, but very soon, no likeness at all. I was staring simply into the into fog, and my eyes smarting with it. Um. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Mighty Felix. She stares at it for a while. Uh, Mighty Felix says, "I thought from my last reading that it was just an instant, um, but it lasts for a good while before it disappears." Yes, and notice when it disappears. Notice what she is thinking when it disappears. I looked and looked to see if it would not fade or change. And sure enough, it fades and changes. Right. And it does so when she rises from her knees to her feet. She was kneeling by the river of the gods flowing from the valley of the gods. She rises to her feet looking and looking to see if it would fade or change. And when she rises to her feet, it does. It does. Um, I wouldn't, Fanaro, exactly say that it's looking for proof that ends the vision. This seems like a dramatization of what we've already seen in Orwell several times. Right? When she, when she wants to believe that she's not seeing something, she can succeed in not seeing it. Yes, exactly. As JJ says, she's not looking for proof. She's looking for excuses not to accept it. To see the palace. She gave, She said yesterday that that would be proof. Show me. Show me your palace, Psyche. Right? She was shown. Why? How? One of the last things Psyche said to her was expressing psyche, psyche expressing her own confidence that she would speak to the god and she's sure that he will allow her to see and she did just as psyche had said when psyche, when she meets psyche again in chapter 14 psyche's going to say greet me for a prophetess what i said would happen came true what she said would happen passage I skipped. Aren't I, uh, aren't I disciplined? Um, so I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, when, uh, when uh, Orwell said she'll come back, but she's not sure when she'll get a chance because the king might not let her leave. And Psyche predicts, I think you will not have a hard time finding an excuse to leave. And then as soon as Orwell comes back at the beginning of chapter 14, she's like, see, I predicted it. But it's not the only thing that she's predicted. What she predicted came true. Exactly. Um, yeah, Sarah, exactly. Um, Sarah says, someone noted above, yeah, I missed that, so thanks for pointing it out. Orwell keeps moving the goalposts of what the gods need to do to get Orwell to believe. Um, okay, you've shown me the palace now, but you need to let me always see it. Yes. Um Yes, yes. Um, and Feanaro, I think you're exactly right. Um, 
if what I saw was real, he says, Orwell can believe and recognize Psyche's ascendancy, but it all hinges on this vision being real. Yes. But Fanaro, I think it also works the other way around, right? It is true that if this vision is real, she needs to ask forgiveness of Psyche as well as of the god. Her relating to Psyche like a parent and rebuking her and 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 um, daring to scold her, she has to repent. She has to be forgiven for those things by Psyche. But that would mean surrendering her relationship with the relationship with Psyche that she holds most dear. That would mean recognizing that Psyche is not her child. That would mean being okay with this gap. Remember, you know, you're so far away, I can't reach you anymore. Remember her emotional outburst there when she was trying to describe what she hated? Um, she'd have to accept that. If it's real, if she's really seeing what she's seeing, she would have to accept that. And she doesn't want to accept that. Um... Um, more and now you who read give judgment that moment when I either saw or thought I saw the house does it tell against the gods or against me would they if that is the gods if they answered make it part of their defense say it was a sign a hint beckoning me to answer the riddle one way rather than the other I'll not grant them that what is the use of a sign which is itself only another riddle? It might, I'll allow so much, it might have been a true seeing. The cloud over my mortal eyes may have been lifted for a moment. It might not. What would be easier than for one distraught and not maybe so fully waking as she seemed, gazing at a mist in a half-light to fancy what had filled her thoughts for so many hours? What easier even than for the gods themselves to send the whole furley for a mockery? Either way, there's divine mockery in it. They set the riddle and then allow a seeming that can't be tested and can only quicken and thicken the tormenting whirlpool of your guesswork. If they had an honest intention to guide us, why is their guidance not plain? Psyche could speak plain when she was three. Do you tell me the gods have not yet come so far? Hmm. Um... <laughs> JJ, I love the connections. You're, uh, JJ keeps coming out with these quotations from the Chronicles of Narnia, um, which are really intimately connected with the things that we're seeing here. I don't have time to discuss them, because of course it would require discussing the Chronicles of Narnia as well, but JJ is just quoting, Well, sir, if things are real, they're there all the time. Are they? says Professor Kirk. Um, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so many connections we could make and don't have time to right now because we have we're not talking about those books anyhow but yeah you're you're totally on there jj um uh okay ambrosius you're right i was struck by her insistence um he says that she could easily have hallucinated it yet when she was writing of the vision itself she admitted that it was beyond her powers of imagination yes um uh, good. Yeah, Curious Chance was saying a very similar thing. Um, yes, yes. I, I, um, 
I don't think there is anywhere in the book where Orowal's protests against the gods are more feeble than at this moment. This appeal that she makes to the judgment of the wise Greek reader, right? Um, even her, the description of it, as you guys are just pointing out, the description of it that she just wrote, right? She just wrote out that description. And now she's writing this appeal. Um, I think she can do that because she's still here, right? She has made this choice, this choice not to see, this choice not to believe. Um, and she's invested in it now, and so she's defending it. Can you come up with a defense? Sure. Um, can you find evidence to support that opinion? Of course you can. Of course you can. Again, so we see many times, you know, multiple ways of interpreting events are always possible. You're never going to be compelled in that way, right? Um, but yes, Vanar, she's grasping at straws. Um, and it seems fairly desperate. Um, yeah, Sarah, I agree. Sarah says, uh, it's as if the vision was so real and so impactful that she can't help but write it all out as she experienced it and then backtracks so hard away from it uh, in this in this defense. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, and, and I agree. I agree, um, Mighty Felix. She's very smart, um, and it makes her really good at lying to herself. Um, she can make a very plausible defense. Remember her praise for the fox? You know, how the fox can, um, you know give somebody a no that sounds like a yes, right? And 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 like the the sort of cleverness, right? And and wisdom of the fox in diplomacy and negotiation. Um we can see much of that same intelligence, that same wisdom being applied here, right? Um it might not what would be easier? That's the sort of turning point here, right? But once again, she comes back to... Um, she comes back to... Sorry, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. She comes back to this question of clarity of, uh, of communication, right? The gods don't communicate clearly. And yet, even apart from the doubts as to whether or not the kind of clear communication that she's talking about is what would actually be good. And the question isn't that. The question is, it's not possible, right? The gods have communicated to her very clearly three times. And she has found reasons actively to reject, to choose to reject it every single time. And if you're doing that, it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter how clearly the gods speak. Um, you can choose not to understand what they're saying. Um, yeah. Curious Chan says, why don't the gods say what I want? Um, yeah. 
something like that. Um, something like that. How do you read it all, Bardia? She asks him on the way home. And specifically, um, oh, it's, uh, I love this passage. How do you read it all, Bardia? Lady, says he, it's not my way to say more than I can help of gods and divine matters. I'm not impious. I wouldn't eat with my left hand or lie with my wife when the moon's full or slit open a pigeon to clean it with an iron knife or do anything else that's unchancy and profane, even if the king himself were to bid me. And as for sacrifices, I've always done all that can be expected of a man on my pay. But for anything more, I think the less Bardia meddles with the gods, the less they'll meddle with Bardia. Okay. Um, I, uh, I, um, no, I can't explain the superstitions to which Bardia is referring, the Glomish superstitions to which Bardia is referring. It is apparently Glomish wisdom um, that it is impious in some way um, to eat with your left hand, have sex with your wife in the full moon, or uh, cut open a pigeon with an iron knife. Um, that's profane, apparently. I don't know why. We don't need to know why. Um, the um, the big picture that I would point to here, um, and this is a phenomenon we've seen multiple times in this book, but it wasn't until this passage that it really crystallized for me really clearly. Um, we talked about... I was talking from the beginning about how remarkable it is that Orwell has no doubt of the existence of the gods, right? Her anger at the gods, even her rejection of the gods, does not lead her to disbelieve in the existence of the gods. It's just not on the table, right? Um, and this speech from Bardia, I think, shows that much more clearly. What is it like to live among the gods? Um, what is it like to be a member of, you know, a pagan society of this kind, like we're seeing in Glom, right? How do they relate to the gods? We tend to think of gods and religions from a very modern perspective, right? Uh, I mean, if you think about it, in our world, if somebody says, I believe in God, or I believe in the gods, that statement itself, just saying, I believe in God, seems to carry with it a presumption of some kind of relationship between me. Like, if I say I believe in God, um, the implication, like, what I'm sort of saying without saying it explicitly is that I, what, trust God, I have... Like, to like, think about what the phrase, I have faith in God, means, Right? In our world, in the modern world. Uh, in our world, the question is simply, do you believe that God, God's, the supernatural world is true or, or, or is not true? Do you believe that that world exists or do you believe that it doesn't exist? Right. That's kind of it for, I think, most of us in most of our um, uh, in most of our societies in most of our circles um, that's the relevant question when it comes to religion and if you do believe in the supernatural then some level of devotion or something is a natural accompaniment to that right the category of people 
in the modern world I'm talking about who would say something like, yeah, I believe that God exists. I just don't care. I, that's, I'm not saying it's unique. I'm not saying nobody feels like that. I'm just saying it's odd. Like, that's not usual. Um, that's not the way that our like lines in our society tend to be formed. Uh, you see what I mean? Um, in Gloam, it's totally different. The question, like, that they're living in a God-haunted world, uh, to quote a phrase from the book, um, is a given. There's no, like, atheism's not a thing, right? The gods obviously exist. Everybody knows that. The question is, given that, given that, how do you live? How can you survive as a human being, as a mortal, in a world with gods all around? How do you navigate your path, right? Bardia wants to live a life of live and let live with him and the gods, right? His whole goal is to make sure the gods pay as little attention to him as possible, right? Because most likely, if they pay attention to him, it's not going to be good. What's he going to do, right? He knows they're greater and more powerful than he, right? He just wants to... So there are certain things, apparently, that you can do which will draw negative attention, right? It will draw the attention of the gods to you. I don't know how eating with your left hand, having sex with your wife at the full moon, or, or cutting open a pigeon with an iron knife is going to do that, but... The wisdom of Gloom says that that will draw the negative attention of the gods. Also, neglecting sacrifices, right, to appease the gods. Keep them happy, right? Keep them happy. Keep them looking, a different, looking in a different direction, right? Um, and, uh, um, and, uh, that's, that, and, and you'll be best off, right? Bardi is a pious man. Bardia believes in the gods. Bardia is a, you know, there's like, there's nothing like deviant or like wrong about his relationship. This is what it's like. This is what it's like to live in this society. Um, you don't necessarily love the gods because you can't count on them. They're different. They're weird. Like, you never know. You know, like one day you're eating, you pick something up with your left hand and bam, you're going to get smitten or something, right? Who knows? Lightning bolt is going to come down on you. Right. Because you, you know, like you, you lost track of you know what day it was. Oh, it's the full moon. Oh, dear. Right. Um, you know, like that's the, the very arbitrariness of these superstitions is important. Or like the fact that they feel arbitrary. Right. Um, is really important. Um, yeah, Sarah, that's an interesting parallel. Bardia's religious practices are like paying protection protection to the mafia. Yeah. 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 Like there's um you just just keep your head down, man. Just 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 keep your head down, right? Um you know, you don't have to like join the mafia. You don't you know, you don't need to resist mafia. Just just you know, pay their money and keep your head down, right? Um Yeah. So this glimpse of outside of Orowal and her issues, right? This glimpse of like the normal relationship with the divine, 
from a from a mortal perspective, I think is is a really important and refreshing reminder in this uh, in this situation. Um, uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, JJ, it's like Orwal is insisting that the god make her an offer she can't refuse, isn't she? Right? The whole problem is that the gods are only making to her offers that she can, in fact, refuse. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. Not a perfect parallel, but I like it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mary says their version of being favored by the gods is being left alone, where more people now think of God's favor as God giving them things. Yeah. Now, they talk about like Ungit uh, as being the source of blessing and stuff, but at least as often, it's about withholding. Right? Like, the sacrifice is made not to induce Ungit's generosity, but to stop Ungit withholding the blessings, right? She gives blessings of life and crops, you know, conception and crops and all these things, right? Um, peace and safety. But sometimes she withholds those blessings. And then you've got to figure out what's wrong. And you've got to get her to stop being angry at you. Right. Um, but that's, um, um, yeah, yeah, but that's not, um, it's not the same thing as like cheerfully going to Ungit to seek blessings. I think some do that, right? Uh, the priest talks that way about Ungit sometimes. Um, but I agree that at the very least, a very significant portion of what we see in the worship of Ungit is the the negative rather than the positive. Don't do anything bad. Um, or don't withhold the good stuff. Um, uh, rather than please bestow upon me a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Bardia, as our man on the street in Gloom Right, as a representative of the standard Glomish point of view, why do you think Psyche's husband won't let her see his face? Bardia, what kind of a lover must this be who forbids his bride to see his face? Bardia was silent. He had a pebble between his thumb and forefinger and was drawing little scratches in the earth. Well, said I, there doesn't seem to be much of a riddle about it, he said at last. Then what's your answer? I should say, speaking as a mortal man, and likely enough the gods know better, I should say it was one whose face and form would give her little pleasure if she saw them. Some frightful thing? They called her the bride of the brute lady. But it's time we were riding again. We're not much better than halfway home. He got up as he spoke. <laughs> well, let's stop talking about this now, he says. Right. Um... Oh man, Cal Elros, you are so right. Orowal's ugliness is the elephant in the room right here. Kind of is. Kind of there are a couple elephants, and this is a crowded room. Some elephants here, right? Um, but I agree, that's one of them. Um, uh, remember, she's veiled. She described putting on her veil before she came. Um, 
she's veiled because wearing a veil is I think it's a it's a grieving thing like she's in mourning so she's veiled um, uh, so that that's why I believe she's wearing a veil um, yeah uh, and yes Leaf of Starlight she reacts strongly against the possible likely ugliness of the brute as well yep yep um Yes. This is the wisdom of Glom. It's obvious to him. Right? It's obvious to him. Um, why would he not show his face to her? Because it's, like, super ugly is why he wouldn't show... Yeah, remember the almost love speech he gave, right? The closest thing to a love speech he gave, right? Uh, if she weren't a king's daughter and a man was blind, she might make him a good wife. Yeah, so if you're saying if you somebody who couldn't see Orwell's face might love her too, yeah, some possible applicability there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Tomas asks, is ugliness a thing with the gods? Seems to be. Seems to be. Um, and the overlapping of the two things, right? Is she going to be a feast for the brute? Is she going to be the bride of the god? Is she going to be the feast of the god or the bride of the brute? Like some combination. Remember the priest of Ungud is like, yes, all of those things. Right. In a mystery, all of those things. Um, and therefore, Tomas, it's important to remember that although the gods apparently can be ugly, Ungud's hideous. Remember the Ungit, the ugly Ungit rock? Right. Um, and the brute. But the brute and the god are the same in some sense, right? Um, that is to say, with reference to that certain elephant in the room that we talked about, that is Orwell's ugliness. In a mystery, it is possible for something to be ugly and beautiful at the same time. Yeah. Um. All right, let's keep going. As he thought, so doubtless every prudent, God-fearing man of our nation and our time would think so too. My other guesses would not even come into their minds. Here was the plain answer, clear as noonday. Why seek further? The God and the Shadow Brute were all one. She's almost quoting the priest there, right? She had been given to it. We had got our rain and water and, as seemed likely, peace with Fars. The gods, for their share, had her away into their secret places where something so foul it would not show itself, some holy and sickening thing, ghostly or demon-like or bestial, or all three, there's no telling with the gods, enjoyed her at its will. Notice how this resonates 
with the impulse we already saw in her. Again, this is the thing that is so... The shape of these chapters is, is amazing. It's just amazing. In chapter 12, we're getting her dealing with the Glomish perspective on these things, as we see in this passage. In chapter 13, we're going to get the fox's understanding of things and how the fox parses this. But both of those explanations, both of those interpretations of events are done in the context of chapter 11, where we've already seen Orwal responding to Psyche directly, and we've seen her own choosing, right? And here, this horrible, this thing that she is accepting as truth when she hears it, why does she accept it as truth? We've already seen her go here. We have already seen her perceiving the beauty of the gods that was revealed to her in Psyche and rejecting it and hating it. Hating that divine stuff that was pulling Psyche away from her. That was making Psyche no longer her baby. But in fact, something beyond, more beautiful, more strong, far beyond her mortal reach. And she hated that. Not despite the fact that it's beautiful, because it's beautiful, because it's desirable, and it's pulling Psyche away. And we saw her taking that hatred and rejection of that thing and turning it into ugliness, right? Imagining. She imagined this already herself. That shift, as we were saying, to from he to it, right? Um, now, confirmation. Bardia confirms what she already convinced herself of. Right? Um, yeah. I was so dashed that as we continued our journey, nothing in me even fought against this answer of Bardia's. I felt as I, I, I suppose I felt as I suppose a tortured prisoner feels when they dash water in his face to rouse him from his faint, and the truth, worse than all his fantasies, becomes clear and hard and unmistakable again around him. It now seemed to me that all my other guesses had been only self-pleasing dreams spun out of my wishes, but now I was awake. There never had been any riddle. The worst was the truth. The truth as plain as the nose on a man's faith, face. Only terror would have blinded me to it so long. My hand stole to the sword hilt under my cloak. Before my sickness I had sworn that if there were no other way, I would have killed Psyche rather than leave her to the heat or hunger of a monster. Now again I made a deep resolve. Better for Psyche to... Better to kill Psyche. So, remember the question we were asking before about how, like, Tomas, I think you were asking why should she be the one to choose whether or not Psyche is happy, right? Why should she think she knows best and can step in and assert that, pater that, 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 that maternal authority, that parental authority, and drag her physically away, right? Uh, she failed, but she tried, right? Um, that same impulse has now cemented a much deeper step further, right? Um, now better to kill Psyche than let her continue. Um, another one of these marvelous um, 
one of these marvelous epic similes, the tortured prisoner. Um, she is like the tortured prisoner um, who passed out and passed into a world of horrible fantasies, right? Because he was being tortured when he passed out. And then he has, has water dashed in his face to rouse him. And he wakes up and finds the reality much worse. Like a, a much worse confirmation than anything that his fantasies had had created. Right? That's how she's comparing herself here. The self-pleasing dreams spun out of my wishes. That's now her reaction to that memory of the... That vision of the palace. Right? See how... In this passage, we see her having taken now several steps away from that moment of choice, from that moment of interpretation. How am I going to take this? Do I accept? I, I saw, I said I would, I asked her to show it to me and she did. Do I accept that or do I not accept it? And she's now, this is how much further now she has moved on. Uh, from that uh, from that moment um, so that now in retrospect she not only convinces herself of the truth but convinces her but reinter she reinterprets not only the original data but she reinterprets even her own wavering her own temptation to interpret it a different way only terror would have blinded me to it for so long it wasn't terror. It wasn't the fear of admitting this horrible truth that was leading her possibly to accept the idea of the palace that she saw in the morning in the fog. Oh, and by the way, of course, that passage, when Psyche speaks of there being no cloud between us, it was, of course, the clouds out of which the palace emerged that I'm thinking of, right? The clouds there um, part. And she, and she sees the palace. So that idea of there being no cloud, she, her immediate referent is the struggle, right? The conflict between them, the bad feelings between them, the, the, the cloud of those things is now between them at their parting, right? But we also see how that maps onto the cloud that briefly parted to enable her to see the palace as well. Just like a veil, Ambrosius. Almost exactly like a veil. My goodness. Um, yes. Yes. Um, and you're right, Curious Chance. Thank you for pointing that out. Why does her hand steal to the sword hilt under her cloak? Um, yeah, she's... I mean, it's her way of signaling... Like, it's how we'd know what she's thinking of, right? Um, but uh, Curious Chance is right to remind us that um, the oath on edge, swearing an oath on your sword, is a very binding oath in Gloam culture. And she, she does that, right? She puts her hand on her sword and then immediately starts talking about swearing, right? And she makes a deep resolve. She doesn't speak it out loud, but we can see that same that same impulse there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, very good, very good. Okay. Um, well, 
if I recall correctly, that brings us to the end of chapter 12. Hmm. Now we got two more. All right, let's finish chapter 12. Then my tenderness came over me again, and I cried never more and I cried never more bitterly, till I could not tell whether it was tears or rain that had most drenched my veil. It was settling down to steadier rain as the day went on. And in that tenderness I even asked myself why I should save her from the brute why I should save her from the brute, or warn her against the brute, or meddle with the matter at all. She is happy, said my heart. Whether it's madness or a god or a monster or whatever it is, she is happy. You have seen that for yourself. She is ten times happier there on the mountain than you could ever make her. Leave her alone. Don't spoil it. Don't mar what you've learnt you can't make. We were down in the foothills now, almost if one could have seen through the rain, in sight of the house of Ungit. My heart did not conquer me. I perceive now that there is a love deeper than theirs who seek only the happiness of their beloved. Would a father see his daughter happy as a whore? Would a woman see her lover happy as a coward? My hand went back to the sword. She shall not, I thought. Come what might, she should not. However things might go, whatever the price, by her death or mine or a thousand deaths, by fronting the gods beard to beard, as the soldiers say, Psyche should not, least of all contentedly, make sport for a demon. We are king's daughter still, I said. Um, yeah. Um, Good. Yes, Mighty Felix, this is the part you were thinking about. Um, she's a woman without a chest, cutting herself off from her heart. Yes, yes. Um, and Mighty Felix, remember also how this sets us up for the next chapter, which is the talk with the fox, um, who, of course, feels things very strongly himself. But the fox is not the heart, he's the brain, right? He has a big heart, and he loves very deeply. Um, but he is encouraging her to think about this with in the light of reason, continuously, right? Um, watching how she... Um, I'll give a spoiler. A little spoiler. She's not going to take anybody's advice. She's not going to go with, the, with Bardia or with the fox. Um, what Orwell does is her own thing for her own reason. And what's more, what she's going to do is going to be a thing that she knows when she does it is a thing that neither Bardia nor the fox would approve of. So in, we will see the way that she resonates with both Bardia and the fox, um, but neither of them is going to be where she, where she ends up. Um, there's a lot more I could say about these last passages, but I think that's the last one. Yes. Okay. That's the end of chapter 12. We'll do chapter 13 next time. Um, I'm going to try to move relatively quickly through the Fox's arguments, but it's important to see the other side of things. Um, and we'll definitely do chapter, we'll definitely get to chapter 14 next time. Um, go ahead and read chapter 15. Chapter 15 is crushing. Chapter 14 and 15 are both crushing. Um, uh, but um, read chapter 14 and 15 and um, we will uh, I doubt we'll get to 15 again but 
we'll 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 strive for 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 thirteen and fourteen next time. Um, oh man, I Leaf of Starrow, I, I I agree. This this book has a striking amount of psychological realism. Um, Leaf of Starrow says, "I understand Orwell a lot, totally." Um, uh, Sarah, how many slides do we do? Let's see, how do we do? Look at that, seventeen slides tonight, huh? Huh? Not bad. Slide number eighteen. Um, I'm embarrassed to admit how many I shoved in total. If you include all the ones from chapter thirteen, uh, twenty-seven is how many I came in with. So we're more than halfway. Not bad. Not bad. Um, anyway, okay. Well, we're getting there. Um, okay. All right. Um, thanks, everybody. Uh, really appreciate the discussion as always. Um, and I uh, should be back as far as I know. Be back next week. See you guys next week. And uh, uh, yeah, have a good weekend. See some of you, I think, in uh, Denver this weekend. And the rest of you, I'll see you next week. Bye now. Thank <laughs> you.